What is your name, woman? He asks. Barbara tells him, hesitantly. He grins. Goodbye, Barbara. And with a violent shove, he pushes her out of the airlock door. When do you know? When do you know? Not the first moments. Not then. Not in the early, heady joys. No. Most definitely not then. And not as life continues. As you almost forget everything there was and it turns into something different. It can't be then. It can't be then that you know. Sometimes, you see, you've known all along. You just don't realize that you do. You have to know that you know. You have to find that out. And you know when it's gone. When you see it torn from your hands. When it's never coming back. That's when you know. The moment you risk losing it forever, you know. And sometimes you have to take a chance. Sometimes you act without thinking. Sometimes you make the reckless move to save everything you hold dear. Sometimes you take a leap of faith. The moment Barbara vanishes through the door, I am moving. Before I even know what has happened. Before I even really know what I'm doing. I hear Vicky cry out, trying to stop me. But it's too late. Too, too late. It seems insane. It's too big a risk. But what else can I do? What else can I do? I run across the room and dive out of the airlock after her. And I'm Brent. Drew, happy 55th anniversary. How do you normally celebrate Doctor Who Day? Well, normally I sit down and watch An Unearthly Child, but this year uh, one of my friends uh, gave me five random episodes to watch uh, with a, a Doctor Who randomizer, so I'm going to try that out and uh, see how that works out for me. How about you? Well, I usually do the same thing. I watch episode one of An Unearthly Child and... Uh... And then whatever mood I'm in, I'll, I'll pick a Doctor Who story, whatever mood I'm in at that time, and and watch one. It's really, really random. <laughs> well, this month, our guest is an accomplished, award-winning actor, writer, and script editor for Big Finish and various other stage productions, and someone we've been wanting to have on the show for some time is John Dorney. We'll talk to John about his prolific work at Big Finish, when he first discovered Doctor Who, and quizzing his mother about his earliest stories. <laughs> and then we'll discuss what we all think of Series 11 of Doctor Who so far before we jump into John's classic pick, Peter Falk's impeccable detective series, Columbo. Yes. But first we have a report from our UK team as James and Adam attend the BFI screening of Earthshock from the upcoming Peter Davison Blu-ray box set, 
with Matthew Waterhouse and Eric Sayward in attendance. And that's coming up right after just one more thing. Welcome once again to another outside broadcast for Who and Company. Uh, once again, I'm joined by a good friend of the show, I think I can describe you as now. <laughs> Mr. Alingra. Okay, here's Alingra, also known as Mr. Adam J. Purcell. Hello, Adam. Hi there, how are you doing? Not bad. After just seeing uh, Earthshock on the big screen. HD. HD. Does HD really exist? I'm not sure. It's upscaled to an extent. Yeah, there's not much outside film stuff here, so... Yeah, arguable. <laughs> it's 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 difficult to to, to know. I, I'd be very surprised if people just went along to see that screening of Earthshock to see the new um, way in which it's presented. Yeah. So it, it, you just go along because you enjoy the story, yeah. which is incredibly good. And it was a lot of fun, uh, as as it always is, to watch Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who, with uh, with a whole bunch of fans. Yeah, very full again, sold out. Yeah, a good way to watch any Doctor Who, I think. Very crowd. I think considering the source material of the story itself is what, an hour and a half or thereabouts? Yeah. We've just spent three hours, 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, lots of interviews, lots of behind the scenes stuff for the deep uh, Blu-ray uh, box set, interviews of Matthew Sweet and uh, Pete Davidson, yeah, good stuff to look forward to on that box set, I think. Yeah, I think we've probably seen everything that wasn't included on the DVDs now, I think. so. Maybe, yeah, probably. <laughs> so apart from saving a bit of uh, space on the shelves, there may not necessarily be a reason to buy <laughs> Season 19 now, yeah. which is slightly ironic given this is a promotional event. Um, although it was uh, addressed quite early on that the release has been delayed until December now. So yeah. so this, if, if this is a launch event. It's somewhat premature. A little, unfortunately. Although if it means they get the release right no more having to reissue discs then That'd be good. all the better <laughs> no I, I completely agree really yeah. i mean how how recently have you seen a shock prior to today oh a couple of years probably been a while probably a podcast view a couple of years ago uh, yeah but for me it's this is my awakenings as a doc 2 fan that era uh this sort of time up until the five docs when i was done to become a true fan after that point it's too late. I was, I was gone. Uh, I was a fan. Uh, so yeah, I have great memories of this first time round. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure I saw this on oh. television when it was transmitted. What year was it? 83? 82? 83? 82? Not 83. Oh. maybe. Who knows? We start talking about 82. years and then we already know our memories aren't very yeah. good there. But, yeah. but either way, no, I'm not sure whether I was that dialed in to Doctor Who at that young an age but I do remember certainly when I got to it when it was released on VHS it was a seminal viewing and its impact Mm. was incredible and I I really really did enjoy it I I watch it now uh, probably five years maybe maybe a bit longer since uh, since I last saw it and I am noticing a whole bunch of other stuff certainly And, and, and I think perhaps the pace in particular felt as though it dragged a little bit which is unusual for an old person to say I think well they, they made a real effort in this story to, to speed it up lots of different cuts lots of different scenes but yeah ultimately not a lot happening in a lot of the scenes yeah unfortunately got a lot of characters who were there for no particularly good reason yeah uh, all the, the people from the cave who get brought along 
don't really contribute anything to the story. No, uh, apart from just to try and make um, the group presence felt, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I think I whispered to you halfway through, there was uh, a character of Walters who was outside, yeah. outside the, the mine or the, uh, the tunnels, yeah. uh, was just left behind and never yep. mentioned ever again. He was there for the outside broadcast filming and didn't make it to the studio. No, so perhaps, <laughs> I don't know, the uh, the case of the missing pirate in Curse of the Black Spot yeah. was a homage yeah. uh, to this character. He's still sat there to his day. Well, very, very oh, sad, really. <laughs> uh, and, and again, I think you look at the way that um, Nissa was used, in, yeah. in, in certainly throughout episode three, she was essentially stuck in the TARDIS narrating things yeah. with a character whose name I don't think is actually mentioned on screen. We had to look through the credits yeah, to find out it was Kyle, 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 right? That was, was it, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's the problem. And they, they spoke about this a bit in the Q&A afterwards with uh, Eric Saywood and um, Matthew Waterhouse. Is three companions too many? I think it, in this case it probably was. Yeah, I think it's a misnomer. It's a silly question. I think it just depends on the story. It does. You've got to really write for those characters. And they don't really have a great excuse in this period. They've got four episodes. They've got a lot of running time compared to New Who, yeah. even the 50-minute format we have now, they really could have found more for them to do. I, I think it's in, in, in entirely down to how the writer addresses that particular issue, is whether yeah. they see it as an opportunity or as a bit of a chore, as Eric Saywood described it as. In fact, I think he, he, looked at, <laughs> he looked at Matthew Waterhouse square in the eye and said, yeah, sometimes the companions got in the way a bit. Yeah. <laughs> the irony was not lost on anyone, really. No. Uh, I have to say, I thought I thought Matthew Waterhouse's uh, performance on stage. I mean, he always talks a lot. Yeah. Uh, oh, but yeah. my goodness. Um, <laughs> he made up for Eric Saywood, who was giving very single-word answers to a lot of the questions. He was. I mean, one of the best thing that Eric Saywood said, without a shadow of a doubt, was the fact that he'd not been asked by Big Finish to write yeah. an audio, which yeah. I'm actually quite. He claimed. <laughs> really? Oh, I, 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 I think he was joking. But, uh, I didn't hear that bit. Oh, well, I don't, maybe I shouldn't have sent that tweet afterwards. So. But so uh, you never know. If, 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 you, um, if, if, if at some point you hear an Eric Saywood's Big Finish audio script, yeah. uh, it could be because he mentioned Big Finish at this, this event. Maybe, maybe. They haven't gone back to many of the old writers in fence, have they, really? No, I don't think Terence Dix has written one either, has he? So. No, he's the other, the other big one of that era a bit before. Yeah, no, absolutely. So certainly, um, I reckon the discussion has been had, but uh, you never yeah. know. I, I would imagine their association with who in their eyes is pretty much over, with the exception of these kind of events where they turn up and answer in monosyllabic answers <laughs> if, if they choose to do so. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, we, we, there was a break in between... Um, episodes two and three mm-hmm. where they had um, Paul Vanessa's I'll never say his name yeah, correctly um, so I apologize now Paul and and, and also um, Marquez mm-hmm. absolutely now as far as I'm concerned their technical contribution is is absolutely beyond yeah. question but yeah. my goodness when you sit there for 20 <laughs> minutes listening to uh, audio and visual stuff unless you happen to be really into that they are difficult to listen to They're not natural showmen uh, but they they've got a lot of interesting stuff to say particularly i mark's stuff about how he takes a mono soundtrack and, and tries to convert that into 5.1 um, a lot of work by the sounds of it and uh, yeah it's interesting but 
maybe better on the page than uh, an yeah. interview. I don't know. Quite, quite possibly when you've got an entire theatre like that. I mean, yeah. I'm not suggesting they should avoid no. these areas that people no, no, are interested no, no. in. But at the same time, when you look at what Vanessa's has got involved in in the past, which certainly in terms of restoring missing or recovered episodes, mm. uh, I, I, and he's eminently listenable as well. I'd much rather listen to half an hour of him talking about that than yeah. um, basically just sitting behind a camera and devising things, which is, you know, fascinating and I'm very pleased he does it. But yeah. Um, yeah, maybe not the best use of the interviewees that time. Maybe not. Because I mean, it's a shame we didn't have a few more actors there. Obviously, Pete Davidson would be a big one to have there. But, you know, availability and cost. Absolutely. And, and of course, we saw the special feature, if we're still calling it that, possibly VAM, I'm not sure, um, where Matthew Sweets interview yeah. Peter Davison for what 20 minutes 25 minutes Maybe about that yeah another oh. good interview absolutely I don't think it's quite up there with his Tom Baker one for the last box set mainly because of the last one he seems like he got a bit closer to the real Tom Baker than we normally see whereas Peter Davison's always been a fairly open sort of guy and so we, we're seeing the same Peter we normally see I, I think that's not his fault <laughs> they're using Matthew Sweet because he has a very unique style uh, yeah. of, of interviewing now I think that has an impact on some interviewees and it most certainly did on Tom, Tom Baker yeah. because he started responding in a very different way and as, as you say Peter Davison I think pretty much gives the same kind of open approach yeah. if a podcaster interviews him yeah. or whether it's someone you know with the career and status of Matthew Sweets mm. as a journalist and so therefore it was another very you know variation of a theme but it was a yeah. new interview yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no the, the box set itself uh, notwithstanding its delay does look interesting and it does um, I, I can't wait to be able to discuss the uh, controversy of the season numbering again uh, the, <laughs> the, with you uh, the anomaly between the US and the UK oh I can't remember what they're doing so with it now here they call it season for old who and series for new who which is fine, at least it distinguishes the two numbering schemes, which is all right by me. <laughs> now, nah, well, we shall see. Anyway, Adam, fantastic as always to, to speak to you thank and you, discuss yeah. Doctor Who with you and, and, and for your company in general. Thank you very oh, much thank indeed. You. Yeah, it's been good. Thanks again, James and Adam, for that report. We get feedback all the time telling us how much our listeners love your segments, and especially for those events that we aren't privy to over here in the States, like those BFI screenings. So yeah, come on, Big Finish. Give Eric Sayward and Terrence Dix at least one try while they're still writing. That would be really fun. And speaking of writers, we have our feature interview this month, one of our favorite writers at Big Finish, Mr. John Dorney. We are beyond excited to have one of my personal favorite writers on the show with us this month. He's written countless Doctor Who stories, including the BBC audio award-winning Absent Friends from Doom Coalition 3. 
and Scribe Winner's Iterations of I and the Red Lady. He's written for almost every range that Big Finish produces, such as The Diary of River Song, Torchwood, Star Cops, Lady Christina, among others. Aside from writing, he's also a talented actor, starring in many stage productions and audio dramas, and even made it to the quarterfinals as part of the Gallifreyans team on Only Connect. Mr. John Dorney, welcome to Who and Company. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah. So what was it like being on a game show? Oh, it was it was a lot of fun actually. I um I don't know whether anyone particularly knows the story particularly this long after the time. Uh, I ended up doing it because I was on in those days Gallifrey Base or Outpost Gallifrey, whatever the forum was at the time, and there was an only connect thread, and we tried to arrange a team amongst us. And it was the three people who lived nearest to each other, uh, me, me, Giles, and Stuart. And, uh, and and we planned specifically to only meet up on the day of the audition because we thought that was a nice little gimmick that they might like uh, in, in TV land, which they did, actually. And, um, uh, yeah, we went away to Cardiff for a long weekend. Um, and it was really nice because uh, that was the, the weird thing with it. I, I met two guys that I really had never spent any time with before. And we went to a hotel in the centre of Cardiff and were in each other's pockets for about four days and just got on really well. They're still absolutely lovely gentlemen and I've seen them quite a bit since then. Um, went to various birthday parties and um, yeah, I, I've got a lot of time for Giles and Stuart. And, and it was great fun doing the show. Slightly, I, I, I think we slightly kicked ourselves at losing. There was there, We ended up in a bit of a perfect storm, is how I described it afterwards. We, um, we, we failed to get a, a big point question uh, as a gamble in the first round, and then gambled in the same situation the second and lost. But it was it was just one of those things. What was the question? Now I'm, um, I'm just really was, curious. Okay. It's only, only connect things. It's 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 ridiculously complicated. It's, it's okay. what's the sequence that this is happening? And we there was a photo of Amy Adams, and we thought it might be A A B B C C D D, which it wasn't. But you know, it was worth a punt, really. It's <laughs> very cool. So uh, what inspired you to start writing, and are there any authors that directly influenced you? Um, I think I was always writing, even as a kid. I really loved stories, and I really liked telling stories. I, I've often spoken about how my uh, mother, bless her, uh, would walk to school, and I would, over this must have been like a 10, 15-minute walk, I would come up with a story that I would tell her uh, that uh, she would have to listen to. Uh, this random musings of a, of a five-year-old or whatever. But the reason I say had to listen to is is exactly the case. She couldn't zone out because at the end of the walk, I would do a quiz about the events <laughs> of the story, which is what? which is cunning and cruel for a small boy. Um, and yeah, it was always my, sort of writing was always my favourite um, thing to do. Writing and reading were always my favourite things to do in in classes at school. Um, so it always just sort of happened, really. Um, I, I I went to drama school, and somehow within very quickly in drama school, I was pegged as a bit of a writer. Everyone kept thinking I was a writer because I I'd, I'd, I'd do little sketches at um, events, and I, I remember writing a, a we we did like a Christmas show thing where I ended up being asked to write all of the little jokes and routines because within the parody of it there was like a, a couple of guys doing Statler and Waldorf and so I would do the jokes um, I still remember one of them, one of them was my, I think is a great joke, it's a slightly odd joke because it always takes people about a second and a half to get and they laugh halfway through the next line uh, which was Statler and Waldorf like after they'd heard a particularly fine rendition of the Holly and the Ivy saying if those were carols she can keep them um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but see, there's a little delay. See what I mean? Just yeah, ever so slightly have to go. Oh, yeah. It, it's uh, but it's a. I love that joke. Um, yeah, and it ended up just writing. I felt like the urge to write a play. I wrote a play called Neighborhood Watch that was dreadful. Um, I keep saying afterwards that I could have written the phrase "I like Harold Pinter" uh, about <laughs> two and a half thousand times and had a better play than the one I actually ended up writing. Because if in terms of like the influence, Harold Pinter was an influence back in the day. I'm clearly nothing like him. The style it was, it was a it was a thing to latch on initially before you find your own voice, as they say. Uh, but yeah, that was it. I just always wanted to write, and then. Um, when I'd left drama school, I ended up just writing a play in the absence of having anything else to be doing because I was an unemployed actor. And um, that got done at the Royal Court in London um, some years afterwards. And it was sort of always a go from there. I didn't really write masses for about maybe a decade afterwards, but I was always kind of tootling away at stuff in the background until stumbling into Big Finish. Wow. Okay, I, I want to find out about how you come into Big Finish first, but I have to ask, are you an only child? Uh, no. No? No, I've got an older sister. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, my sister, Gemma, who is um, one of the loveliest and kindest human beings you could possibly hope to meet. I'm the sort of the dark, cynical side, and she's the positive, optimistic side. Um, yeah, and uh, entertainingly enough, I named one of the characters in one of my Doctor Who stories after her husband, in fact, now her married name, which is which is Ashman in the Rocket Men, one of the Companion Chronicles I did. Um, one of the one of the odd occasions where it looks like I chose a name in order to do a reference because how he gets killed off at the end, it, I play a pun on it. But um, oh. no, it was it was literally just because it was a good name for a villain, and then you go, oh, I can use that. Then I, I can pick that together. Yeah. So I I I, I just like reading, and uh, yeah. I'm just saying, forcing your forcing a quiz on a parent after a story mm-hmm. uh, that really feels like something an only child uh, would do, and I say oh. this as as an only child. Uh, oh, so. okay. it, it's a, it's a good. I, I I no I I I was just uh, irritating rather than yes. <laughs> gotcha. yeah. It, it, I, I do feel sorry for. I basically pretty much do it now. I I you know occasionally if I'm like taking my mum out for a drive somewhere. I've forced her to listen to one of my audios. You know, she'll be listening to Trouble with Drax and getting baffled beyond belief. Um, and occasionally just play these ones and go, it was a bit loud. It was a bit loud, that one. You know, she'll like some of them, though. Yeah. Does she uh, ever offer to listen to them without your prompting? Uh, is, um, is she a, a fan? Is she a fan of Doctor Who? Uh, not especially. I mean, I think she'll watch it. I think my, my she lives with my sister and her husband at the moment. And... Um, I think they're watching Doctor Who quite merrily of their own volition. In fact, she had actually asked to watch one. I, I she's got a massive pile of the CDs. I, mm-hmm. We get sort of uh, a certain amount of freebies, and it, uh, one of them will always go to my mum just so she's got a collective set. I I think she struggles so much with technology that she can't quite figure out how to listen to any of them. But you know, we'll we'll see how that works out in the fullness of time. So, how did you get started with Big Finish? You say you say there's a kind of a, a ten year drought in between where you're mm. just kind of scribbling away but then how do you how do you approach even writing for something like that or were you approached well i always wanted to that's the thing Mm -hmm. i um i know there was a big writer's opportunity sort of around about 2003 2004 i submitted three ideas all of which were rejected 
Um, I think I'd kind of gone in with a slightly arrogant assumption that because I'd got a little bit of a track record with the Royal Court play and a couple of other little bits and bobs here and there that were quite impressive, I thought, you know what, and these aren't quite right, but they'll, they'll, there's something to be developed and they'll give me time to develop them. And they didn't. They just quite rightly received a thousand things and went for the ones that were right straight away rather than the ones that you would need to work on. Um, as it happens, one of those ideas... I eventually did use because I was still very fond of it, which is the story that became the fourth wall. Um, and uh, they, I developed it and tweaked it and gave it the extra kick it needed um, that I hadn't quite got in that initial stage. Um, but yeah, so I was always quite fascinated and quite keen to do something with uh, with Big Finish, even from the early days, but couldn't quite get through the door. I think, I think again, when in the early stages, they, there was an open door submissions policy and I just didn't have the time or the energy or actually I did have the time and the energy. I just was um, too much of a born procrastinator and um, to actually get up and do something. I was too, too sort of um, lazy. Um, and uh, so that kind of went and then it was just a question of finding another way in. Um, thing is, I, I always think people people ask about how to get into Big Finish, which is an understandable question to ask if you want to be a writer. Um, and I think there's one thing that people tend not to notice. There's a few things that are worth mentioning if people are interested. Uh, one is we do say no unsolicited submissions, and people always seem to me to ignore the key word in that sentence, which, which is uh, the word unsolicited. Because uh, that does imply that there are, you, we do take solicited submissions, if you see what I mean. And that if somebody uh, emails the company and they or gets their agent to get in touch with the company and has a good track record, then there's every chance we'll look at something that they're interested in pitching. Um, but that is um, a question of getting some credits or going off and doing something. So, as I say, I had a couple of credits from other things that made a pitch for me look like a plausible prospect. Okay, that's one thing to mention. So it's looking for work in other places and you can always write. That's the joy of being a writer or trying to be a writer. As long as you've got a pad of paper or a computer, you can write something. You don't need to, it's like an, an actor, you need someone to get you in a room and say, can you do this? Or we'll film something, whatever. But as a writer, you can always do it. Um, so that's one aspect of it. But the other thing that happened in relation to, as I say, that open submissions where it got rejected, was that you should never waste an idea. And so, as I say, the idea I quite liked that became the fourth wall was at the time called The Silver Scream. You can search it. You can still find the list of titles there, and it's still there. Um, and and I thought, well, I can't get in this way. There's not going to be another open opportunity for a while. Uh, what's the way of doing this? And the way I, I went for was looking at other ranges, because I thought, well, people are going to be pitching all of their stuff for Doctor Who. So maybe it's worth looking at something else and seeing if I can get in via a different route. So I got in touch with Nigel Fares, who was at the time producing the Tomorrow People, asked if I could submit a Tomorrow People story. Um, and he said, yeah, and you can also submit a Saffron Steel if you want. And I loved Saffron Steel and I was indifferent to the, the Tomorrow People. So I leapt on that one and <laughs> worked up several storylines, um, which then proceeded not to get made for about four years. Um but uh, and and when why when people will ask me how did you get involved I tend to point out that it was in an unrepeatable set of circumstances because the story I submitted um, was set in a nursing home and I'm not entirely sure whether Nigel read it at the time or not or whether he just hadn't got around to it but when the second series of Saffron Steel Audios was being made Gary Russell was supposed to be writing one he dropped out 
to go and become script editor on on Doctor Who on TV. Nigel had to write a, a script quickly to replace her, and he wrote one set in a nursing home. Now, I don't think he took the idea of me or anything like that. He's got perfectly capable of coming up with ideas of his own. Uh, but it prompted him to read my one after the fact when I think Richard Dinnick pointed out that, that oh, did you know John submitted one? Because uh, I've known Richard for a while. And Richard had written for the second series. And um, so I think that's the point where Nigel went through and went, actually, we should make this one. This is quite good. And that was my in. So as I say, it's an unrepeatable set of circumstances because the entire thing was reliant on somebody else getting a job somewhere gotcha. else. Without, without Gary getting the job um, at Cardiff, then I probably wouldn't be doing Big Finish today. So thank you, Gary Russell. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. Yes, It's something we say often, uh, surprisingly, in the fandom. So, you know, it's always nice to repeat it. Well, I wanted yeah. to ask you about uh, one of your fourth Doctor stories that you wrote called The Crooked Man. Oh, yes. That is one of the creepiest stories ever, and I love it. And I was just going to ask you, where did that idea come from? And, and when you write something like that, do you have a certain environment you like to be in, like a certain spot or certain music that you um, play? Oh, it's... It's it's odd, really. Um, I'm trying, the, the idea, a lot of it. One of the unsung heroes at Big Finish is David Richardson, who can come up with a, an astonishing amount of ideas that then you kind of want to work up into something. I think it's not unfair to mention that uh, that storyline, the storyline idea he'd come up with was, uh, and this is a spoiler if people haven't heard it, so skip over a few minutes or so if you haven't. Was um, the land of fiction in a house? And it had gone to another writer, and the other writer didn't quite gel with it for whatever reason. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes you switch around. Um, and he offered it to me. And I was quite keen to do something different with the land of fiction. I think that's where the the idea came about. Um, I wanted to look at other types of fiction because I thought we've seen the story where famous characters from fiction turn up and we've seen that in every variation. So I thought, well, what about the, the non-famous ones, the, the tiny bit parts, the other ways of defining fiction, like, as I say, like a, like the tabloid caricature of somebody real. And, and that's where the brain started going. Um, and it led into various ideas I'd had about the way that fiction kind of leads our own lives uh, so that we, in a weird, I, I, I don't know if this is just me, but occasionally I think, well, I think this is going to happen because this is where the, the way the plot's been going. My life does not have a plot. I don't think anybody's life has a plot. It's why there, there's a line at the beginning of um, Better Watch Out where I have the Doctor say, this isn't a true story because there's no such thing and the, the greatest life fiction has ever told us is that it reflects reality, which is something I largely believe. There's, there's, you know, It's always based on a true story rather than a, than a true story. Um, life doesn't happen in three acts. It's that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I'm slightly going off the point. But they all kind of contributed to me coming up with this vague story that I remember as well had a lot of help from uh, Johnny Morris who was script editing it uh, there were all manner of weird little things in that where I'd put a de I think I had a random uh, detail somewhere in the script that the father didn't like his daughter touching the books and it took me a long time to realise that that was the nub of the plot and that's where the whole crooked man of the title came from actually that's the wrong thing to say it isn't the crooked man of the title that's, um, that's one of the things that I little factoid um, is that the title in my head does not refer to the character called the crooked man in the story, which is a bit of a weird thing to say. The title refers to the husband in my head, hmm. um, which, which if you've heard, it makes a bit more sense. And hopefully, again, there's a spoiler if people haven't heard it. But yeah, he's slightly at an adjunct to reality in his own way. Um, so, yeah, that was always the, the way my brain thought on it. 
In fact, actually, one of the notes in the original story was that the Crooked Man didn't appear enough. I was going, that's because he's not the Crooked Man. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So that, um, and in terms of environment, uh, I write kind of wherever I need to. Usually, I've got a desk at home in an office I have at home. It always feels like it makes um, more sense to work in a in a specific environment to like go. This is my workroom. This is where I go to work. Uh, I've got all my Doctor Who magazines, all my Doctor Who DVDs and stuff is in this room if I need research and and dictionaries and stuff like that as well, all, all the things that I might need as tools. Um, it, I think it's good to just have a solidly, this is my work environment area. So you go, I'm going here, I'm going to work. Having said that, Crooked Man I wrote on a sofa in the front room of the house I was in beforehand where I didn't have an office. And I vaguely remember um, writing at least some of it on the roof of a flat where I was rehearsing a short play, where, where it was basically a friend of mine was house-sitting for an actress friend of hers who wasn't there, which I'm trying to remember the actress's name now, but it's the girl who played Izzy in when we did the audios with her. I think, um, uh, I can't remember her name. But um, yeah, she it was, it was in on the roof of her flat for some reason, which is a really, a girl I've never actually met. Um, so... <laughs> slightly strange and small world thing there anyway that that, that that that's a long-winded answer to your question there i think do you find that you get inspired to um write certain aspects of stories when you are concentrating on something completely different so you know it's sort of like the shower effect where you're you're allowed to not be thinking about the problem that's been stressing you and suddenly inspiration comes do you find that while you're working on a play you might get ideas for a story yeah um yeah it's always for me, the, the 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 difficult part is always the storylining. That's always the bit that takes forever. The writing of the dialogue, usually, not always, but usually is the is is the easier bit in comparison. Breaking down a story is always the bit, and and that can come anywhere. Um, often, I I go for long walks or I go for swims, uh, but sometimes, yeah, it is just. I, I think I joked once about the frustration of of coming up for trying to think about the idea for one story and then realizing no, I'm actually coming up with loads and loads of ideas for the one about three stories down the line. Um, can't I come up with the ones I'm supposed to be doing now? Um, yeah, the ideas come in any shape or circumstances. Occasionally, occasionally you need to sort of sit down and focus. The, the, the last one I was, I was writing, um, was incredibly logistically complicated and I would put my phone down I put my computer down and I would just go out for a long walk and just leave nothing else to think about than that. Hmm. Just avoid all distractions and find somewhere in, in the local park where I could just walk in a circle over and over again. There's a, where, there's a little, uh, the place I live, there's a, some, some, what's the word? Ruins. And uh, I can just wander around them in a circle. It's like a marked circle. So I can just go, yeah, I'll just wander around this wall on top of this wall and just think and think and think until I've got something right. You, you never know where, where an idea will come from and sure. uh, where it will pop into your head. And yeah, sometimes it's watching a bad film or, or <laughs> reading a book or doing anything, sometimes going for a drive. Um, I remember the idea of having uh, Liz Shaw in Primord, the, the Doctor Adventure, I think came when I was just um, going over to pick up a friend to help her move house. Um it, it, it's for whatever reason that just popped into my head. I thought, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good idea, and um, and then emailed to check I could do it. So yeah, all these sort of crazy little details. Well, yeah, they come, they come from all manner of places and all manner of times. And then it's just a question of sitting down and typing, which is the same. Usually is the fun bit because I've done all of the hard work before. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, 
I've often talked about how there's um, synopsis me and writer me. And sometimes synopsis me is a massive jerk to write. <laughs> I remember I discovering this for the first time. I think I was writing um, a, a Jago and Lightfoot called Beautiful Things. And I'd written this bit where there were four of them in the room. And then the villain comes in and he says that he subdues them. And I just stared at that and just thought, how? There's four of them. How, how does he do that? What, oh, you, you and and just go. You can you can write that down. Me of a month ago, I'm the one who has to deal with that. You know, it's just it's a very strange position to be in. Sometimes. Well, when you're dealing with something like Doctor Who, or yeah. within that Doctor Who universe, it it's plausible that one individual can subdue four people because you have such a massive toolkit to work with, right? Like you're, yeah. you know, you can jump outside the boundaries of rational thought because it's Doctor yeah. Who. Yeah, the um, I, I ended up having a brief chat with um, the uh, very talented and very uh, intelligent Steve Hall, who wrote a couple of big finishes a while ago, um, who came up with the solution, which was basically the villain. The story takes place in an infinite library, and the villain showed them a map of the library, which was just too much information <laughs> for them to comprehend. Uh, it's just a lovely detail, and that's entirely Steve, I should, which I'm happy to credit him for. I will. I will happily apply to work at the Infinite Library. Yeah, um, it's not a very good library. That's the point with it. It's got every possible book you could ever have, and as a result, they're all dreadful. Mm, mm, so, so even potential potential books. This is the book I thought about yeah. once. This exactly. is the, the it's, synopsis. It's, it's, you it's, has it's, come up with uh, five hundred of those, and those books are infinitely written. Are instantly written. Yeah, it's, it's every yeah. possible combination of words up to the length of a book. Oh, uh, yeah. Pass. All right. Yeah. No, never mind. <laughs> yeah, they're mainly dreadful. You can you can search for your entire life and never find a single book worth reading. Is the, this the, is just Harold Pinter repeated two hundred and fifty thousand yeah. times? Right yeah, there. yes, exactly, exactly that. Uh, that, so, that book does exist in the library. <laughs> <laughs> we we've sort of been talking around this subject because this is primarily where we bring in people to talk, talk about Doctor Who. But we, we haven't asked you this yet. When did you first start watching Doctor Who? When were you first exposed to it? Um. I'd have to do a tiny bit of the maths about the precise year. I think it was 1980, so I'd be about four or five. Um, and I, I know the very first bit of Doctor Who I ever saw was, I think, the opening and indeed closing of, of An Unearthly Child. Um, but I got scared and switched the channel. It was on as one of the five faces of Doctor Who repeats. Oh, right. Yeah. And I didn't watch the next few and then i remember the very first one i saw was carnival of monsters a few weeks later which has always got a special place in my heart so the first stories i watched were carnival of monsters then the three doctors and then um uh logopolis and uh and then i sort of watched avidly for the whole uh, peter davidson years I, I basically fell in love um, i think i was came for something else a bit sci-fi having loved star wars and this was the one that just caught me and uh, and i remember seeing things i remember going to australia because my family's i'm half australian on my father's side and um and watching some of the repeats there i remember seeing a couple of episodes of robots of death and the final episode of talons of weng jiang all both of which have come back to feature in my life in some uh, strange ways I, i've realized that I, i've had a ridiculous amount of interaction with people from the robots of death in in my life uh, than than almost any other Doctor Who story because I've like worked with half the cast. One of them taught me at drama school. Uh, it's really strange. Um, and but what a great story to be connected yeah. to. Yes, 
I, I, I have said um, that, and I, I will not use the word for, for fear of offending, um, there, there's a particular swear word that um, I've been called by one of the cast members of Doctor Who, and it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was D84 Greg Depolno when I was at drama <laughs> school. And to be fair, I was being one. So, sure. um, and um, yeah, it, it, it was it was quite an honour and a privilege. <laughs> it, it was very good. It was very exciting, basically, when I was at drama school to have have the video of robots of death to show around, so people could see um, one of the staff pretending to be a robot and being stabbed in the back of his head. Everyone was delighted to see that. <laughs> uh, how about were they delighted that you were showing it around? Um, Actually, I've, I, I'd have, I would have to ask him. I don't think he knew I was particularly, but oh. um, I think he was ever so slightly baffled, having been to lots of Doctor Who conventions. The moment he discovered I was a Doctor Who fan, that I wasn't just kind of like, oh my god, you're the greatest thing ever. Because I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong, Greg DePolnay is a very nice chap, and I've got a lot of time for Greg. Um, but yeah, I, I was there to do a job. I was being professional. I don't go nuts for people if, um, in that scenario. I, I'm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a slightly different thing. So, uh, do you have a favorite doctor? Um, oh god, probably Troughton. Yeah. Even after all these years, I I love the performance. I love the style. I'm watching one at the moment actually, and um, yeah, just just he does so much. He's so inventive, and it's it, it it's one of those weird things I think that perhaps more than almost any one of the other doctors. He's the one who is, as far as we can tell, least like who he actually was as a person. You know, I mean, I, I the, the sort of the bumbling, clowny, bit messy thing um, doesn't really fit with what we know about him. Uh, whereas everybody else, they sort of seem a bit like who they are in real life, and they kind of are. I mean, I've, I've met a good chunk of the surviving ones, and they're all really similar. Uh, to who they are on the program, and um, the exception being Troughton, I think. Um, it's a really good performance. I mean, obviously, in terms of people I work with, I, I basically sort of love all of them, really. Um, I adore working with Tom uh, whenever possible. I, I love writing dialogue for him, and I, I think I've got a reasonably good grasp of his voice, and he's just an entertaining person to hang around. Um, and it's it's great fun writing for Paul, and I, I've not done much for Colin, which is a shame. And I'm hoping to get. I think I've got another chance coming up that very soon. Um, and and you know they're they're all wonderful to work with. But I would say ultimately my favourite is, is Troughton, and I've got a real space in my heart for Hartnell as well. Um, I what I did a rewatch of the early years, like starting and beginning through, and I never managed to complete like the total rewatch as I'd hoped. But that really gives you an appreciation of what Hartnell does as well. And I think it's something that not enough people do. Yeah, I, I, a quick question, because we were sort of talking about this. You are getting a chance to physically interact with these people mm -hmm. uh, who you were a part of your childhood. right? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly safe to say that. And you get to go and watch them speak your words. Mm -hmm. What is that like for you as a writer? Because I, I know frequently... You know, if you're reading, if you're writing books, you're generally no one's. You're expecting anyone to perform it. If you're writing plays, yeah. obviously that's that's very similar to that. But when you're audio plays, you get to be there and watch them record it, and they get to, you know, put this these lines of your dialogue that you wrote down permanently in the audio, and then you get to hear it mixed yeah. and everything. What is that like for you as both a writer and a fan to be in their presence when that is happening? Um, well, it's kind of an odd thing, really, because I um. 
you're in a slightly different place um, because uh, coming at this as a job and um, you've been working over the scripts and honing over them to get the voices right all of this time. And it's a, it's hard to make the connect in a way. I remember finding something slightly weird. I I was working with Tom Baker one morning, and we finished at around lunchtime, and the day was finished. And we I went off and I drove over to Dan Starkey's house because we were, it was the time when we were collaborating on a script. And Dan had happened to have there was I think the Horror Channel was showing some Doctor Who things like that. And he had an episode of Genesis of the Daleks on, and it really struck me when I saw Tom Baker on the screen, thinking, "Let's just spend the morning with that guy." <laughs> And and I can't quite associate him as the same person um, because this is I, I'm seeing them. They're obviously you know they're a different age. They look different, uh, even though the voice is the same and they're playing the same character. There's a disconnect there, and um, I kind of think if I thought about it too much, my mind would be blown. But it's the thing. I'm seeing them in the green room. I know them as as people. It's and, and the people they were in the TV series is so long ago. Well, and that and and such a distinct idea I had of who they are. So I can, in a weird way, separate them probably more easily than anyone. Hmm. Um, because because I've long had this fixed idea, of, and that's the sixth Doctor, say. And then meeting Colin Baker, you you going, and this is Colin. He's a very different person, and and it's 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 odd, really. I I can never quite get. I can never quite marry the two. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Do you think that's partially because you yourself are an actor and you've taken on parts and then moved on from those parts and taken on new ones? And um, Yeah, possibly. But I think it's, it's, it's more the fact, I suppose, that, that I've had these ideas of the characters so long. Mm. So knowing what the fourth Doctor is, knowing what the fifth Doctor is for so long, and they've been such a fixed thing without me knowing the people. Um that that it's much easier to keep them apart i think um where when you begin to know them and speak them off even say as even though they're broadly the same there is still obvious differences and it's kind of particularly noticeable i find with uh with the, the companions as well where I, you know i can see it's the same damn person but they <laughs> it's a different interaction and a different kind of environment so yeah it, it's it's Really, it would be hard to think of them as being the same people in some way, I think. Well, to just uh, cross over into your acting just a bit, uh, you also star in a range of Big Finish based on the old show, mm-hmm. The uh, Omega Factor with Louise James. Yes. So how is that? How is working on that range different from the other projects you work on? Um, well, there's a few things. One, i really delighted to be right at the end of the process. Um, because with everything else I've done, and often with as a writer, as, as an actor as well, I've been aware of the script. There's a few I've been in, something like the Tom Baker stuff, where I've been in a few of those where I script edited them. Mm-hmm. So I've known the journey and I've known where the characters have come from and all of that sort of detail. Um, so it's hard to just come to the story and just do the job as an actor, uh, where I made a very conscious decision to stay on the outside of the Omega Factor. Um, the first series, I think I was cast maybe a month, month and a half before the recording. And I knew they were doing it. I didn't know anything about the plot, anything about the stories. And the first I knew was when the scripts arrived. And I could just go, right, I'm just here as an actor. I'm just seeing these specific lines and being a, a, a judge on this script. And 
interacting with this. I'm not thinking about earlier drafts. I'm taking this exactly as I would any play or anything else I would be, and I'm completely on the outside of it. Um, and the other thing is is just being in the recording studio um, and being one of the leads, you're much more involved in the process. All the other things I've had, nice nice parts in, in other stories, but this is the one where there's a lot more action, a lot more activity, and it goes quicker uh, because you're constantly doing the job, and then suddenly, oh, it's lunch. Hold on, I've, been, I've barely noticed, whereas if I'm... A sporting character you're in and out every day and then getting other things in the way and you know it, it takes a lot more time so it's that was the main excitement i had really was just um being being able to be there purely in one position rather than having multiple hats at the same time uh-huh. yeah and just being able to go i'm just here as an actor and um and diving in that way well uh you mentioned the lunches i have to ask oh yes <laughs> everyone <laughs> yes. asks about the big finish lunches Yes. Well, they are spectacular. Um, and regardless of where you are, I mean, uh, Toby uh, in the Moat Studios is probably the, the star far and away, but they're always great. Um, but, but Toby in particular is a miracle. I'm quite looking forward to um, December. We've got one recording coming up, which is a script I've written with a particularly nice bunch of people. So I suspect it might be... All, all holds barred and you know all the stops pulled out um because i i think it's going to be it might be the last one before christmas it's it's quite late in the day um and i imagine that'll be a fun one to go to i'm really looking forward to that you 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 just have an insane array of stuff with flavors like you never expected and you get lucky things like you go sometimes it's curry day curry day is always a marvelous one where there's about Mm. five different types of curry and um poppadoms and breads and stuff and then uh, yeah it's always a mix of there's meats and there's fish and there's vegetarian options and no one is quite sure how he manages to do it um but is there a kitchen at big finish okay there's a kitchen at the at the studio um just a little kitchen which doesn't which seems to have nothing in it that's the thing that baffles me it's got a microwave and a fridge and i think that's it so no one is entirely sure how he does it (laughs) no one is sure when he finds the time that's the other thing as well well maybe he's a in the same way the doctor is a doctor he is a cook maybe he's his refrigerator is bigger on the inside maybe he that would explain a lot (laughs) well uh, let's uh, let's move on i'm kind of curious have you caught up with the current series series 11 uh, y- yes, I have. I'm reasonably up to date. Okay. So just briefly, because it's something that, you know, we only record once a month. And so every time we do this recording, at least three or four episodes have passed us by. Sure. Um, Brent and I have not talked, discussed this at all. And it's always nice to discuss it when we have this opportunity with our guests. What, what do you think about series 11 so far? I'm pretty much enjoying it. I, um, yeah, I, I think she's very good. I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm quite um, entertained uh, by her performance. I thought um, ever so slightly, and I think the first episode or so, I've, I had moments where going, "Oh, you're not you're not quite not every single line was landing quite all the way." But then that was like maybe an episode or so, where it's clearly just getting used to it and getting into the swing of it. And I think basically she just nails everything now, um, and. 
and that's obviously really superb and rather amazing to listen to. Um, I, I I love she's proved the doubt is wrong, which I think is absolutely the case. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm rather enjoying it. I think uh, I, I, there are some episodes I particularly loved. I, I a week away uh, from Demons of the Punjab, uh, which was last weekend, um, and uh, I thought that was a real belter of an episode. Really loved mm. that. Um, I. I, I've had discussions with people online about uh, people thinking, saying, well, why wasn't it a historical episode? Uh, why did it need to have the aliens in it? And I absolutely think the aliens are vital to it. I know they don't in particularly impact on the outcome of the plot, um, but some, you know, somebody pointed out, that's a bit of a slightly weird way of looking at it. It's like um, if you're reading a whodunit, sometimes they'll go, well, this person wasn't actually the murderer. And you go, well, you, that doesn't mean you can cut them. Um, I think what the the monsters do is they enable the actual story to sneak up on you mm-hmm. um, and give you that moment towards the end. I, th- I think what, it's one of my favourite moments of the entire series is when uh, he, the character whose name I can't remember says the line about um, we've got our own demons to face. And yeah, Prem. Think, oh, yeah, and it's just that moment of going, oh, it's like, oh, the title... The title didn't... It's like what I said with The Crooked Man. The title is not meaning what you think it means. Oh, and it, that, that realisation of how it all came together and just uh, broke me completely. Um, and I, I think that's an astonishing episode in particular. Yeah. It's and that's really what started a lot of conversations, episode. too. Sorry? I said it started, started a lot of conversations, too, which oh, yeah, I've which seen is, online. Here's the thing. It's, it's, I didn't know much about the partition, and uh, or I think it might just be partition. Um something i'd heard of but um i didn't really know the details of and and it's because i'm a bit of a historical ignoramus i I wanted to do history at school but ended up being shifted to geography for no readily apparent reason um but there's a it's the thing i always think about in terms of history is that you never know what you don't know um you there are whole sections of history where you go well hold on i didn't know this detail about this and and you miss things because unless you know it, you miss it's there. And so getting a degree of education about, about partition was really interesting and really made me interested in looking at other things in other areas. I remember it kind of, so this is going a bit off on the tangent, but I remember seeing a TV dramatization of the diary of Anne Frank. And there was a moment in that where the, the Frank family are in hiding, listening to a radio um, announcing the landing on the beaches at, on D-Day. And the realisation that Anne Frank was still alive and in hiding on D-Day slightly blew my mind at the time because it was just I me mean, going, oh, I'd forgot, I didn't know quite the order of the events happening in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all these bits where, you, you, I don't think it's ignorance per se, it's just you've not ever quite got the data in the right order. Um, so giving, it, it's in a weird way, it's Doctor going back to its historical roots. So if people learned about Partition, have learned about Rosa Parks, that's um, a, a, a very important thing for it to be doing, I think. Um, very powerful historical areas to go into, really. Yeah, yeah. Very, I think very brave in, in the way the show went about showing the, that information, I think, was well incredibly well done um Mm -hmm. kudos absolutely to everyone involved with the production of all six episodes that i've seen so far Mm -hmm. particularly the the direction has Mm -hmm. been oh yeah really exceptionally directed it It looks amazing um where they've chosen the film you know south africa i think and um 
I was reading, I think it was Spain, standing in for India. Uh, they just always look cinematic and mm-hmm. wonderful and just beautiful and gorgeous. Yeah, I, I, I just adore the way it's all looking. Yeah. yeah, I spent some time traveling through India and mm-hmm. watching it. I, I felt nostalgic, even though that's oh, yeah. not where where they actually were. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it it's it manages to give all the that the, the feels really. So yeah, it, it it's it's a good run. I'm looking forward to see where it goes. I am too. I am uh, particularly enjoying the the interactions. I feel mm-hmm. that what we're getting with this series more than anything else is a really in-depth look on how the Doctor interacts with the relationships with her companions. Yeah. Which I don't feel that we got. I Actually, when they described it as saying not companions but as friends, this mm-hmm. show has gone out of its way to make that term a real reality. And yeah. I appreciate that. It's it's a I'm getting something very different from this season of Doctor Who than I've gotten from any other, and it works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had one moment that I was a bit um, confused by, and I'm quite curious to see whether this is addressed. It was it was at the beginning of Demons where there was a moment where because she she's having her chat with her nan, and then then she joins the the guys in the TARDIS, and and Ryan and Graham are in the background. And I just had this slight moment of going, how does their daily life work at this time? Mm-hmm. Really? Which I was slightly, slightly amused by. Did, did the, it, are we back to the thing of where they return every now and then and she goes back to her family and then she came to see the doctor, but Graham and Ryan are already there? It's uh, it's a little bit vague to me, but I um, that that was the one thing where you go, that's the minor level of nitpicking I've got, really, isn't it? Well, it's just kind of this, okay, there was one little... Like, uh, there was one little scene. I forgot what story it was, but they come back to uh, to Earth and they say, well, uh, the doctor says, well, why don't you go back home and you do this and we'll just meet back here in a couple of hours. I, mm. think. I don't remember what story that was. But... Oh, yeah, it's that. Yeah, it's like, I think it's probably arachnids, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So maybe, maybe yeah. It's something like that. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it, 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 to be honest, it's always you know, it's a part of the game. Does it matter? Yeah. Does it matter? <laughs> That's always the question you've got to ask with with some of these sort of nitpicking, haven't you? You just go, yeah, just does it matter? Almost certainly not. Sometimes, especially when you know you do a podcast where you critique episodes uh, mm-hmm. or have those, that, that we start looking for those faults. Uh, mm. And that's one of the, the things that I... I don't like about being a podcaster sometimes is that I it's hard for me to be an active viewer where I just I can just or sorry passive viewer where I can just sit and enjoy the story because I know I'm going to have to have these conversations I don't know what the people we're interviewing are going to talk about and so I have to watch it with a, a a critical eye and I pull out those those moments like how did um Yaz's grandmother not recognize her from possibly the most eventful yeah. and traumatic day of her life, especially when she shows her that she's got her henna on her hands. Does it matter? No, it does not. Um, no. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I, I've I've been watching recently um, some reviews of, of of stuff, and occasionally I find myself thinking, "Yeah, this is nitpicking. This isn't a review." Uh-huh. Yeah, um, or kind of looking for plot holes and stuff like that, which isn't quite a review. Um, but having said that, you know, it, it's, it's a thing, but I think occasionally you need to combine it with more than, yeah, with thoughts about the structure and all of those kind of things, I think. But yeah, every now and then 
your brain just goes, oh, but what if? And they go, doesn't, no, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Does the story get you? Then, you, then it's fine. So do you have a, a favorite episode um, from the six that we've seen so far? Oh, uh, uh, Demons, I think. Demons. I, I, uh, I, I really liked Woman He Felt Worth. Again, that's mm-hmm. a, which is another one where I would absolutely 100% contend that the title is not referring to the Doctor. Um, for much the same reasons as I said with the, the Crooked Man. I think it can so, refer to the Doctor, but I don't think it, that's what the intent is. Do you think it refers to Grace? Or... Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's the, um, the, in a weird way, with the blog at the beginning and the end. And that sums that up, that I, I definitely think that that's the intent, is that the story title refers to her. And not yeah. the I've seen that as well. How about you, Brent? What do, so we haven't talked in, in a month. Um, now that we have three more episodes under our belt, um, what are you, are you, what are you feeling towards this season? Do you have a particular favorite episode? Uh, well, I think they've been all great so far, except for one. And, uh, so far Rosa and Demons of the Punjab are my favorite. I think Demons of the Punjab is absolute favorite so far. And, mm-hmm. uh, the other thing about that is, um, there's a, there seems to be a lot more historicals this year than there has been in a long time since we're talking with John, um, the first time I ever heard of you was when I heard uh, Wrath of the Iceni. Oh, okay. And that cool. was really entertaining as well as being really educational because I'd never heard of Lady Boudicca. We aren't taught about no. her over here. so um, No, why would you be? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that prompted me to go look up things, and, and, um, and the stories this year have uh, prompted me to, to go in and read more about you know Rosa Parks and, and uh, everything going on with Pakistan and India. And it's very educational. Yeah, it, 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 I think it's a useful thing to do with the format. It can be fun. Well, it shows it's viable. You know, I, I think a, the argument has been that you know we hadn't had a quote unquote true historical since mm. uh, what Black Orchid. You know, yeah. where where there was nothing s- supernatural or alien involved, uh, and and neither of these historicals that we have, I think, are true historicals. But that's no. fine. But it's nice to see one that we can get a tr- his, uh, historical, and two. These are historicals that are not centered around white men, uh, which is really exciting, even though white mm. men essentially have been the reason that both of these historical events have happened. So it it generates a conversation. I think this is very much Doctor Who of its time, uh, yeah. which is really quite exciting uh, as well. I, I agree. I think that Deans of the Punjab uh, is my favorite. I, I got a chance to rewatch it last night. So, so far, the only two I've rewatched are Rosa and Demons of the Punjab. Um, strangely enough, uh, the two stories that haven't been written by Chris Chibnall. Um, but I really genuinely enjoyed the previous weeks, the uh, Saranga Conundrum, because mm-hmm. uh, while I don't think it was a perfect script, um, I, I really liked the, the odd feeling of Jeopardy and uh, all of the events going together. And so that felt like very much Doctor Who. I mean, everything has felt like Doctor Who to me. And I think that's, yes. I think that's in itself is, is quite exceptional. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I liked a lot of it. And there's always something to, even the episodes I've liked less, there's always been something to enjoy in them. You know, it's still my favorite show and still always yeah. going to be that. This is dreadful. Sure, I get... This is dreadful. Don't you realize that a great wine is like a great work of art? It has to be nurtured. It has to be taken care of. You have subjected this port to a temperature in excess of 150 degrees. 
Such disdain cannot and must not be tolerated. I advise you not to pay for the check. But, sir, I think that... Uh... This wine has been oxidized by overheating. Oh, no. Where did you keep it? On top of the stove? I assure you, monsieur. Don't you know any delicate wine spoils by being subjected to a rapid change in temperature? Serving this iodine is an insult. Monsieur Corsini, is there something wrong? Is there something wrong? Everything is wrong. An exciting meal has been ruined by the presence of this liquid filth. Well, let's talk about favorite shows for a second, because when we bring a guest on, uh, we always bring on our guests because we we know that they are involved with, with Doctor Who somehow, right? Is a, yeah. a fan or a part of it. But we also know that Doctor Who is not the end all and be all of their fandom. And so you have brought us quite an exceptional program. Um, John, would you please ex- tell us uh, what other show that you've brought and why you chose it? Um, it I've gone for Columbo. Um, <laughs> and Columbo, it's because I just genuinely adore it. Um, I've always loved um, whodunits and mysteries. I like puzzles. I like games and wordplay and things like that. I always think of writing a script as being like actually a little bit of a puzzle. You're going, well, how do I put the words in the right order to tell the story in the best way imaginable? Um, and I remember distinctly um, the very first episode of Columbo I saw when having basically watched um, like whodunits and remembering seeing Miss Marple um, that I knew how a whodunit worked. And so, so seeing seeing the reverse who done it of of Columbo was really hard to get my head around. And so, seeing the first episode, I go, but how does this work as a mystery if we know who did it? And then, obviously, you're watching it and going, well, that's how it works. Uh, it, it, the mystery is about how he figures it out, and it's just genuinely hugely exciting. I think as uh, as television goes, it's surprising, it's inventive. It's kind of, it owns the genre. As I say, the genre of the of the reverse who done it has existed for ages. I mean, something like, say, Dial M for Murder feels like a good example of it. Mm. And um, in a weird way, I think that there's talk about whether it's influenced by crime and punishment. It's somehow, though, regardless of it inventing the genre... I was talking about trying to write a reverse who done it for Star Cops, which I've just written an episode for. And I remember saying to Andrew Smith, going, I'd quite like to do Columbo. I didn't say I want to do a reverse who done it. I want to do Columbo. It basically is its genre now. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you want to explore what that idea is, it's Columbo. Um, and it is still one of the little things I don't think I've, I've, I'd quite like to write a variation on Columbo for a Doctor Who. I, I know some people think I wrote so good how to make a killing in time travel, which people have viewed as a Columbo. When I I don't think it is because the villain is way too incompetent and <laughs> and not anywhere near arrogant enough. But that's the thing. That's the, the the thing I love with this. It's it's there's so much going on underneath the surface. The the, the villains. It isn't just a whodunit thing. The other aspect to it is it's always about quite rich, um, quite powerful. And very arrogant people dealing with um, and underestimating a schlub who they always think they're going to do better than. They always think he's not got a chance against them because he's a little ramshackle. But they don't realize that that's disguising unconsciously, I think. I think he's just a bit, you know, 
just his personality disguises the fact that he is sharp as a tack. Um, and and, and then you've always got the fact that by virtue of the way the series is designed, it's just made to have ridiculously good guest stars. Um, yeah, there's a way that they've got this thing where every guest, you know, they've always got a brilliant actor playing uh, playing the villain. Um, and sometimes brilliantly against type. Oddly enough, it just came up on Facebook today. One of my Facebook friends was saying, who's your favourite Columbo villain? And you go, well, where do I start? <laughs> um, one of the favourites that Luke's someone is to say Dick Van Dyke, who's playing brutally against type as a very, very nasty piece of work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then there's some um, glorious sort of uh, Leonard Nimoy, properly evil, manipulative surgeon. Everyone is... A really nasty, hissable villain, and uh, and there's just some fantastic episodes in there, I'd say. Um, and, and particularly, there's there's a, there's a fascinating thing I found. Um, there's some glorious stories. The more you look into it, for example, like Peter Falk directs one of the episodes, um, but they deliberately gave him a difficult one to direct because it's one set on a building site, so there's loads of dust everywhere. So he had such a nightmare he never wanted to do it again. That's fabulous. Um, but there's one particularly glorious episode in the first season, uh, which is called Suitable for Framing, where the villain um, is an actor called Ross Martin, who's best known for the Wild Wild West. And um, I think he'd been an acting tutor to Peter Falk at summer camp or something like that is the story. Um, and the end reveal of that, the way that Columbo gets him, is so ridiculously clever and shifting the basis of what you expect um and then they even top it with another little reveal at the end of it and it's so good that i even now when we're talking like it was i think it was the early 70s um so it's about nearly 50 years old i'm not willing to spoil it because it's such a magnificent moment <laughs> um that, that peter Falk was constantly saying that's what we need that's what we need every episode and when it sings those reveals at the end, the gotcha moments, mm-hmm. are what you're waiting for. Just the thing, the little trick he has up his sleeve that absolutely gives it away. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's another glorious one in a Jackie Cooper episode where he's playing a, a, a politician. Um, every now and then it doesn't quite work. Every now and then there's one where you just think, but why, why would there's one episode, I think it's called Mind Over Mayhem, where the villain is uh, Jose Ferrer, I think it is, mm-hmm. and and he just smokes a cigar in the villain's apartment for no damn reason. And and it's just, even I was watching it just thinking, why are you, why have you done that? Why? why? Is it, are you setting someone up? No, he's giving himself away. He's absolutely giving himself away. And, and there are one or two others where somebody pointed out there's... Um, there's a few plots where you think this would not stand up in court. I mean, not right. even remotely because <laughs> the, the one in particular I, I remember is that there's uh, the, the Leonard Nimmer one. He's playing the surgeon and being, uh, there's a glorious bit. I, I will slightly spoil this if you haven't seen it, but I kind of can only talk about it. Um, the key piece of evidence he plants on Columbo when they have a bit of a struggle because um, he needs to get rid of it somehow. And, um, and you're thinking this bit going, how would that work in court? Wait, so where did you find this key piece of evidence? Well, it was in my pocket, sir. Right, case dismissed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's never going to stand up, is it? Um, but actually, the main, the main reason I think that was I, I thought of this one as as a particular series to mention, uh, to bring along as, an, as another favourite, was I think it's impossible. If you 
are just trawling through channels of an afternoon, say it's a bank holiday or whatever, and you just happen to land on an episode of Columbo, I think you have to keep watching to the end. I mean, I, I think you've got everything. You know who the villain is, basically, just because of the way it works. You know everything you need to know. You're going to finish watching it. And even then, it still manages to surprise you from time to time. Occasionally, it does slightly daring things. There's a there's there's the um, Martin Landau episode where he plays twins, and you're not quite sure which one of them actually did it. And then there's the episode where halfway through, it suddenly turns into an actual whodunit for for no clearly <laughs> conceived reason apart from to make you go, oh, hold on, hold on, I you, oh right, okay, it wasn't who I thought it was after all. Yeah, um, I, I like the invention of it, the, the joy of it, and the sort of the general feel of it and then sometimes it pushes it to be actually quite emotional and affecting there's a uh there's a lovely one with um i'm trying to remember her name um janet lee um who probably might not it might not have been aware when she was committing the murder and may not even be aware she did it after a while because of uh, gradually losing her mind and then uh, and then the donald pleasant episode i i bonded with a couple of friends once um actually it's one of the things that bonded me with uh, tom Selinsky who now writes Big Finish Audios as well, um, and is a podcast partner of mine. We do a podcast called The Best Pick Podcast, where we're watching all the Academy Award-winning best films. And um, and we were talking about um, watching an episode in tribute to Peter Falk when he died. And we, we ummed and odd about which episode, and he said, so which one would you have picked? And it turned out we'd have picked the same one, which is an episode called Any Old Port in a Storm, mm-hmm. uh, where the killer is Donald Pleasance, and it's genuinely quite affecting. And it's a, just a beautiful performance from Pleasance. Um, and that's it. Peter Falk steps back, allows someone else, usually Patrick McGowan or Robert Culp, but sometimes other people, to just take over the scene and do their entire thing and have have all the good lines and all the good moments whilst he's just slowly stealing it from under them. It's just a, a, a beautiful dynamic to watch, I think. We asked you, uh, are there a couple of episodes that you would like us to watch in particular? That was one of them. The other was Fade into Murder with William Shatner. Um, yes. Why why did you pick those particular episodes? Well, Any Old Port in a Storm is, is, for my money, probably the best episode. Um, uh, it's, in a way, I should, I should, I'm slightly disappointed. I should have said suitable for framing as well, because that is also terrific, just for the reveal at the end. But um, Any Old Port in a Storm is just beautiful. It, at the ending sequence where they're both just drinking in a car um, kind of sticks with you. It's not an especially clever murder as such it's got some nice ideas but the degree to which it sort of pushes the sympathy uh where i think you come up genuinely quite liking the killer as i think does Columbo, and the fact that it isn't always these arrogant tossers having um a nasty life um and and being murderous and evil um occasionally you have the ones who are just poor people backed into awful circumstances. Um, you can see why he does the murder and you sort of want him to get away with it, and that you know he can't because it's just the way the series works. So I think that's a really interesting one. Um, and the other one, which I think is called Fade Into Murder, the William Shatner one, is just shamelessly entertaining. And it's it's so it's good. it's sort of very grand grignol when you figure out what he's actually why he's actually murdered this person. It starts off there's this is one of the things as well, there's always a mystery to it. That's the thing that people don't notice with Columbo is that there's always like a supplementary mystery. Sometimes it's the motive. You're not quite sure of the motive. And the motive in Fade Into Murder is obscure. You think it's one thing and then eventually it's revealed to be the other. There's at least one other episode where 
you spend a good chunk of the episode thinking that the, the murderer has killed the wrong person, only then to discover towards the end, no, it, they were deliberately intended to kill this person and it looks like they accidentally killed the wrong person and the motive is something completely different from what you thought it was. Um, and it, so occasionally does tricks like that and Fade Into Murder does one of these where the actual motivation is 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 barking mad, not quite as barking mad as William Shatner's actual performance, um, <laughs> which is... It, it, it is sky high, but just it's possibly the most purely enjoyable episode, I think. Um, also for the, the mad levels of meta fiction going on there where he's playing a detective who's nominally interviewing and interrogating himself and he's playing yes. as Columbus. I don't even it's it, it's hard to get your head around. It's glorious, though. It's one of the best things. It, it, it's a fun hour and a quarter, really. You, you you have a great time with that episode, I think. Yeah, he's actually playing like a smarmy TV detective trying to be as smart as Columbo and and actually conceding like a chess player at the end when he's finally outsmarted. Mm, yes, you know, it's it's. It's just gorgeous. I find that one. It's hard not to be happy watching that one. I think that's. I, I think. I did play it to my girlfriend to try and woo her into getting <laughs> watching some Columbo, and I think she lied. You went, yeah, not really for me. <laughs> even, even though having the sheer fun of Shatner at his most Shatnerific. Um, he's, I, he's, I don't yeah. know about it is most Shatnerific. I uh, after watching these two episodes, I went in and watched the other Shatner episode oh, yes. of Columbo, well, um, uh, which which he is, because it's a much later episode, I think it, yeah. it, it's made in like the late 90s, early 2000s, and uh, uh, Shatner feels, uh, it feels a little bit more like how I, I think of Shatner when I think of Shatner. I guess maybe it's just older Shatner versus mm-hmm. kind of prime Shatner. Yeah. Yeah, but okay. to see him, uh, it's, very, it's very much like a chess game. It's kind of fascinating because Columbo's whole shtick is He's the bumbling buffoon who seems like he doesn't know anything, but they get yeah. rid of that. They throw that away right off the bat, um, and and it's like, well, no, 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 no. I've played this detective enough to know that what you're asking me is the exact same thing I would be asking in this same scenario. And so he's actually calling him out. Uh, yeah. And I think the first time Shatner does that to Columbo, I think Columbo genuinely is taken aback by this and realizes he has to change his tact, which yeah. is what he does. Like he, he, anytime he plays the bumbling fool, Shatner pulls him out and, 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 uh, Falk has to, like, or, or Columbo has to change what he's doing and goes with him. And I find that kind of mm. back and forth with them to be really cool. And, you know, I feel I hadn't watched Columbo from start to finish in a really long time because in the States, Growing up, when I did finally get a television, Columbo felt very ubiquitous. Like it was sort of always on, and it would be one of those things where if my dad was flipping through channels, we would stop and we would watch it. And so I, I don't know how many episodes I've seen from start to finish, but as soon as any Port in a Storm came on, I went, oh, I remember this one. Like, yeah. vividly remember that one. It's gorgeous. Which is, yeah. which is good, because it's such a good... And, and I at the time, as a kid, um, I didn't have an appreciation of who Donald Pleasance was. Mm-hmm. So uh, now as an adult watching that performance is really great because for me, uh, you know, he, I, I still kind of see him as Loomis, right? Like uh, yes. from Halloween films. But uh, with Shatner, Shatner's always Kirk. And so it's neat to see a non-Kirk performance because he is very much not that that uh, character. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, to be honest, that's always the joy of it. I think there's so many people getting the chance to be something they don't get to be. Because so many of them are like actual like TV heroes. That's what they are. So it's not just Shatner, there's Lawrence Harvey, there's, um, as I say, Leonard Nimoy, um, all manner of people, you know, Patrick McGowan, mind you, he's, as I say, he's always playing it. Right. Um, George Hamilton is an odd one. I'd say Dick Van Dyke, fully against type. Um, yeah, Ruth Gordon, you know, there's it, it's it's just an ongoing list of, of terrific actors, and you just get to have such a beautiful time watching it. If I could draw in a comparison, actually, now that we're talking mm. about this, because the show is you all, Colombo is going to be the constant, right? Falk's performance yeah. is going to more or less be the exact same, and that sort of you get the joy in it. Like, you know he's going to solve the crime at the end, and you know he's going to play that part, but the joy is kind of get the guest star. It reminds me a lot of the 1966 Batman TV series, where you get yeah, where you a, get a, uh, a, a celebrity villain, right? Like, it's, it's normally when you get a, um, a whodunit show, because this is a who, how catch him, right? Like, this is yeah. how is he going to catch him out? In a whodunit, when we're watching it, and you see someone, an actor that you recognize, you think... They're either going to be the victim or they're going to be the killer, right? Like you don't bring on a big name star and have them be a bit part. And that's a shame because it takes away from the enjoyment of a regular program. But on this program, you can let them just chew the scenery or be something that they're normally not. And Mm. you know they're going to get the full screen time because we watch them more than we see Columbo. Because I think 90% of the episodes I've seen, Columbo doesn't show up until like – 20 minutes into an episode yeah there's there's a there's oddly there's like one or two where he took tur- there's one i think where he turns up right at the beginning and it feels wrong mm-hmm. um but um but that, yeah i think somebody did a chart of it and it's it can be be- between a couple of minutes and about 20 minutes yeah we didn't actually say this when did you first start watching this show because it can't be that long I do- again it's repeats um uh-huh. and so this specific episode i think as i say I, I think it was uh, one called uh, Not Fade Into Murder. So I'm just looking it up, actually. I'm just having a check. Blah, blah, blah. What was it called? I think it was called Make Me a Perfect Murder, is the one I think it is. Um, and again, it was just a repeat. And my dad showed it to me, and I just went, oh, this is gorgeous. I um, was always hooked from that point on. Yes, it's about sometime, maybe about early 80s, I think, at a guess. Sure. Is this something that you specifically watched with your father? Like, um, not like... entirely. I don't think I ever specifically watched it because I don't think it was like a regular thing. Mm. Um, but then it was just that realization that if like, I have to be switching channels and it was on, I'd go, "Oh, I have to watch this. <laughs> I have to watch this. This is good. This is Columbo, and I know I know who the villain is already. It's great." Well, I wanted to ask you this, uh, sort of tying it back to Doctor Who. Do you think the character of Columbo is maybe an American version of the Second Doctor because he sort of acts I... dumb, but he's really smart and cunning? I think there is a lot of the Doctor in him, um, and not necessarily even just the second Doctor. I think it is that same thing of um, the... I, I can see it now you mention it, the um, the similarity with the second Doctor in particular, but I think there's a lot of the... It's the same thing. It's a... It, I've always thought that the best actor to play the Doctor is a... It's, it, the Doctor is a supporting role, really, if you think about it. Everything he does is... His entire personality, or her personality... Um, is what you would have as like the sidekick to a, a traditional hero, um, and I think Columbo is much the same. That they are effectively like supporting characters who no one is told aren't the leads 
with uh, or can't be the leads. They've decided, no, I might be a supporting character, but I'm going to be the lead, damn it. So they're, they're played by great character actors. And um, so there's a lot of similarity there. Oddly enough, the, the, so, yeah, so I'm watching a trap at the moment, I'm watching The Dominators, and that feels very much like an episode of Columbo because it is um, the, these, these giant evil monsters uh, slash alien types who at no point throughout the entire story realise who their antagonist is. They're consistently <laughs> underestimating it. I love, I love the ending of it when they just get blown up on a ship and, and literally just must have their last moments going, sorry, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to colour my viewing of the Dominators from now yeah. on. <laughs> just bought it. They never realise the Doctor's their antagonist and it's just, they, they think they're winning until the last seconds. They don't realise it at all. It's gorgeous. I love the Dominators. <laughs> Well, um, if people want to find you online or learn yeah. about your new projects or apparently you have another podcast, which I, I yes. would love to, you know, I'm looking forward to jumping on on that. Where can they find you? 20 episodes of that. Yes, it's fun. So where can they find you online? Um, I'm Mr. John Dorney on Twitter. Um, you can probably find me relatively easy there. As I say, the podcast is Best Pick Pod, which uh, can be found on wherever you get your usual podcasts. Um I think that's pretty much it, really. Um, I'm occasionally arguing with people on the Not Big Finish forum, um, <clears> the Divergent Universe. In fact, I'm not really arguing. I'm usually discussing it. And occasionally, I'll comment on Facebook threads, but I try to avoid that because I think people should be able to say whatever they want uh, and without the fear of an author coming along going, well, actually, I believe this. No, so, um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm easy enough to find on Twitter, I think, yeah. And do you have any projects that are coming out soon that you'd like to talk up? Um, just just the ongoing Doctor Who stuff, really. Um, if, if it hasn't been announced, then I probably can't talk about it. Um, there's there's good stuff coming up in Ravenous, I will say. That's definitely going to be worth uh, listening to, which is a sort of our ongoing Eighth Doctor stuff. There's a lot of exciting uh, material on the way there. I, I We know what's happening in every episode now. And in fact, most of... At least half of Ravenous 4 has been written, and we know the ending of it, and we know... I would say the final two lines are going to excite people quite a bit of the entire Ravenous run. So um, that's something to to sell people that, that's coming up soon. Yeah, That's excellent. Well, there's just <clears throat> one more thing. Yes, one more. Is, is that I have to thank you for, for joining us today on Who and Company. Well, thank you for having me very much. It's been a lovely time. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixel who. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show at patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. What in the name of... What are those things? Why do people keep asking me that? How am I supposed to know? The Walani! The what? They're aliens! You sure? I've never heard of them. They look more like men in spray-painted boiler suits to me. That one's got a zip on its back. And trainers. Those flares? Their faces look like they're made of papier-mâché. Well, that does make sense. If their claws are strong enough, do not try to attack me, crumpled creature. You will regret it. Alice. 
You said just now this makes sense. How? Because they are men in boiler suits with papier-mâché faces. They're from Rage of the Wellani. What? Professor X, Series 3, Episode 12. It's not one of the best stories. You're single, aren't you? How did you know? Oh, call it a hunch. 